820 is welcome to stay. <laughs> if you're here for the 940, come on in. And please don't sit in the very back because we're going to have like 20 people here during this break Sunday. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises together.
Greetings. Thank you for, again, uh, being a huge part of our ability to go to the country of Haiti and to the village of Massier to provide medical and dental care for the people in that village and in the surrounding area. I was reminiscing this morning that... uh, that as a child, I always sat in the, the third pew back. Our family sat in the third pew on this side, uh, morning, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, 42 weeks out of the year. Some weeks we were out of town. And as a child, I looked at the ceiling and studied the ceilings. We had these, uh, this big cathedral ceiling, and it was uh, tongue and groove pine boards, And I think that I can close my eyes now and and draw a picture of what those boards looked like and what the ceiling looked like. Um, We have a nice ceiling in this church. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. Uh, If you sit up in the balcony, especially in the back of the balcony, and I've done that, you can see how straight the lines are, and it looks really nice. Um, Four years or five years ago, I, I built a garage. Uh, and some people on Facebook have denigrated it and called it a barn, but it's really a garage. It has a, um, a wood truss uh, framework that holds the roof up, and we had a lot of fun setting those trusses uh, two feet on center, and it all is up there nice and straight, and I can now stand outside, and I can look at the roof and see the straight roof line. It's kind of fun to, to be able to look at that. Um, the church that we worked in in Massier has a truss roof inside the church building. And there's no, there's no uh, finish on the inside. It's just the bare trusses on top of the concrete block walls. And uh, the trusses are four feet on center and all infested with termites. The, uh, the trusses are four feet on center and the fourth truss from the front of the church building hangs down at least 12 to 14 inches, maybe more. And it looks like it's been repaired about four times, at least, at least two to three times. All of the repairs are completely rotted through, and we concluded this year that the roof is holding up that truss. It is not holding the roof up. It's in, in bad need of repair. Um, it was dangerous for the crew of doctors, dentists, who slept underneath those trusses, and we concluded that we can't do that again. It's really too dangerous. Um, We had talked to the church elders four years ago about uh, what their plans were for repairing that, and the the speculation was that it might cost $20,000 U.S. to do that repair work. They've, they've managed to gather about $1,700, 
in the past four to six years. Um, this year, we asked them how much it would cost to repair it, and they had an engineer look, and he looked at the entire building and said it would cost $70,000 to repair that. Uh, it's a huge price, and these people are too poor. They don't have enough money to go to the doctor or to the dentist and pay a dollar to uh, get a tooth pulled out that's been aching for a year. Um, We had a team of 16 people that went, and uh, while we were in Haiti, we saw, seven, uh, saw 484 people in the medical clinic. We saw 177 people in the eyeglass clinic and dispensed 133 pairs of reading glasses. The dentist saw 573 people and extracted 1,050 teeth. Uh, if you saw the condition of the teeth that were extracted, you, you would be astonished uh, how people would live with that tooth in their mouth for a month, three months, six months, maybe as much as a year uh, that this tooth has been sitting there decaying. Um, a rather odd and strange thing happened to me in the midst of all of this. Um, and I'll come to that. At the end of our time in, in, in Massier, the village of Massier, um, we met with the elders and the pastor, and we, we said, you know, this roof is in terrible condition. It needs to be repaired. We can't sleep under it anymore. It has to be repaired. It costs a lot of money. We know that we spend a lot of money going to Haiti to care for the people there. We said, w would it be economically a good idea for us to stay home next year and take the money that we would have spent on airline tickets, the money that we have lost by not working in, the, in our offices, and use that money to help repair the roof. And the pastors and the elders said, we know that our roof is, in, is sick. It needs help. But our people are sick and we care more about our people. We need to have you come. Please come next year. We need to have you care for our people. God will care for the roof, but we really appreciate what you do. And, and you have helped enable this to happen. Halfway through our, our time there, we did about three minor surgical procedures. One was on an elderly man of about 75 years old, and it was a very personal uh, intimate type of procedure. Uh, I won't go into the details here, but I did the procedure, and I had three women who were standing, looking on, helping me. Um, and it took about 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes, to do this procedure. We finished it up. We put on the Band-Aid. The man stood up to, to get dressed, and as he did, he said... I'm sorry, this is hard for me to do out loud. He said, thank you. He said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. You will never know how much this means to me. You will never know how much relief you've given me. Thank you so much. I thank you, and I thank you, the people that sent you. I thank you, church. He said, I, I'm, I will pray for you. I will pray for your family. 
I pray that God blesses you. I pray that God blesses your family. I pray that God blesses the church that you come from. I will pray for you every day. And he went on and on and on. And the hook, the hook went deep into my heart. And so from that man, from the people of Massier, I say thank you for supporting this effort in the country of Haiti. Thank you. Please stand and join us as we continue in worship together. There's nothing worth more than will ever come close. Nothing can compare your living hope. Your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen of the sweet. When my heart becomes free and my shame is undone, your
As we prepare to spend some time in prayer, the, uh, remind you, invite you to uh, use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers. We're going to uh, spend a, a little bit of time in silence as we begin our time of prayer to, um, to center, to focus our thoughts, our attention on God, and um, to listen to what He may want to say to us. And I was thinking as we as we come, to, if you want to come to the altar rails, we do that. Maybe we just sing that chorus, just me with the piano. Just to sing that chorus one more time as we ask God, uh, as we pray to lead us to the cross. So if you'd like to come to the altar, please do so as we just sing through that chorus one more time. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Oh, lead me, lead me to the cross. Father, in this moment of silence, lead us to the cross. Help us to see you and to hear you, to focus our attention solely on you. Father, we come today and kneel at the foot of the cross. It's here that we, we know that you love us, that you are good and gracious and merciful, and that you are the God who can answer and does answer our prayers. So today we bring to you all the burdens and the struggles and the concerns of our lives. We lay at the cross our relationships and pray for restoration and for healing and for encouragement and blessing. Father, we we bring our future to the cross. The unknown ahead of us that can so often create fear and anxiety and worry and stress and uncertainty. Father, we lay all of this at the foot of the cross and we place it in your hands, trusting you because you are good and merciful. Father, we bring all who are grieving to the cross and we pray for your comforting presence on each one. We bring to the foot of the cross all who are struggling with issues of health. And this morning we, we bring to you Rich Reynolds, 
Calvin and Laurel Bucher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Mucher, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Retz, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and others who may be on our minds today. At the foot of the cross, we pray for healing. Father, we bring to the cross the ministries of this church, and specifically today, we we bring those who work with our little ones in the nursery. Thank you for their willingness to be a part of this ministry. Thank you for the blessing of children in this church. And we pray that even, even in a setting like a nursery, your love will be evident. And these little ones may begin to understand how much you love them because they see how much we love them. And even now, help them to sense your love and that all of their days, they would love you. We pray, Father, for the ministries outside of this church. And we we pray for the Belfast United Methodist Church today and ask for your blessing upon them. And whatever struggles or burdens or concerns that the people of this congregation have, help them to sense you at work. And bless Pastor Russell as she leads them. Pour out your spirit upon this congregation and their ministry. We pray, Father, for the outreach beyond this church. And we we think of the college students and community people who are going to be working this week in Love Allegheny and ask that you you would bless them and bless their work and the interactions they have, that they would, in very practical ways, help people to know your grace. Father, we pray for the wider world. And this morning, we pray for Kevin and Cindy Austin and Josiah as they have sensed this call on their lives to go back to the Czech Republic. We pray that you will affirm that for them and help them as they go through the process of raising support and prayer support and all the things that they need. And we ask that you will bless them immensely. Help Kevin and Josiah as they go on this trip. And may it be a wonderful time of being back in the Czech Republic. And be a moment of affirmation about your call. We continue to pray for the church around the world. And we think today of the struggles that that some are having in China. We pray especially for this pastor who has taken a stand and is now facing the consequences of that. Give him strength and courage. And may he and others shine the light of Christ people who need to know. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the cross. We ask that your spirit will be at work in all of us as we come to the cross and sense your grace and your healing and your mercy. We pray all of this through Christ our Lord, our Savior, our returning King. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. 
Since then, we know that it was to fear the Lord we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for those it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. You are the God who reconciles the wayward heart through Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. We are reconciled by love. We are reconciled by love.
Seated, uh, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. If you had a chance to uh, look at the bulletin in the, at the in missions moment today, you might have noticed that uh, it's, it's about Kevin and Cindy Austin, and uh, they are, have been sensing God leading them back to the Czech Republic. Uh, they were there for a while, uh, eight, ten years ago, and uh, are now feeling the call to go back. And Pastor Kevin, who's been a part of our staff for the last few years, and it's been great to have him. It's obviously going to change the dynamics of that. It's going to be pretty hard for him to be on our staff and live in the Czech Republic. So we're having to deal with that. I tried to talk him into that, but he wasn't buying it. But, uh, so he will be uh, finishing out this, this year to the end of May, though we are giving them freedom to, uh, to, because they need to begin raising support and getting out into churches. So he, his, actually his time has been cut in half. So give them freedom to do that, and Pastor Paul Shea is taking on some of the responsibilities that Kevin has been doing, and I appreciate uh, Paul being willing to do that. Uh, Kevin and Josiah are going to the Czech Republic in a week or so uh, for about 10 days, and I was really praying for them on this trip, and, and for Kevin and Cindy as they transition. So just keep them in your prayers, and we have, we're working on a long-term solution beyond the end of May, and we appreciate your prayers for that as well. One of the things that struck me as we were thinking about that plan, about that idea, is when you start talking about, you know, what's going to happen, how are we going to do this, uh, there's always this sense of you need a contingency plan, right? I mean, wise people have contingency plans because you just never know if what you've planned is going to work out. And a why, if you go to a leadership seminar, one of the things you will hear from them is always have a plan B, Always have a contingency plan. Uh, build it into how you structure things. Build it into your budget. We have a line item in our church budget that says contingency. And we put money into that. Hopefully we don't have to spend it. But we have it in case we do. And that's just being wise and prudent. And, and we all need plan Bs. I, I, there have been a few Sundays throughout the years or weekends in the years of my ministry. When on Saturday, I've not felt so good. And I'm thinking, am I going to be able to preach tomorrow? And I have one or two options. Either I can say, well, I'll wing it and see what happens, how I feel like in the morning. Or I can make a contingency plan and call one of the other pastors and say, yeah, just in case. 
I've, they've told me it really increases their prayer life when, I, when, they, when they do that, you know, for me. Uh, you know, you want this plan B, otherwise you're going to come on Sunday and people are going to be going, so what do we do here? So you, we all need a plan B. And that's the thing that surprises me so much when I read passages like this one. Because God seems to be implying that when it comes to telling the world about Jesus and spreading the gospel... There is the plan, but there is no plan B. What Paul is saying is, you guys are the plan. The church is the plan, and God doesn't have a plan B. We're it. As frightening as that may be, we're the plan. And as I think about that, then the, the thought that comes to my mind is, what does it mean to be the plan? What does it mean to, to be the witness of Christ to the world? What does it mean to be the, the ones who, who are the agents of sharing the gospel with people who don't know? And the scripture gives us a lot of ideas about what that might be. It's sort of a multifaceted diamond. But the thing that Paul talks about here and, and the language that Paul uses here is, is telling us that if you're going to be ambassadors for Christ, you're going to be people of reconciliation. That's our calling. To be people who work for reconciliation as opposed to alienation. And there's something in our spirits that we have a tendency in our sinful human nature to be alienators rather than reconcilers. And the call of the gospel is for the church, for God's people, to be agents of reconciliation. I think, if nothing else, that means we are people who build bridges instead of walls. We're people who are looking for ways to connect with folks instead of looking for ways to disconnect from people. I think one of the, one of the great mistakes of the church, especially in the 18th and 19th, 19th, 20th century, early part of that, segments of the church, was to say, let's see if we can get as far away from sin as possible as if the sin wasn't going to go with them wherever they went. We're going to get away from, you know, the sin of big cities. And we're going to get away from, from sinful places. And we're going, to, we're going to disconnect ourselves so that we can stay pure. Missing the whole point. Because to be a reconciler, to be an agent of reconciliation, you have to go where people are. And you have to connect with people where they are. You have to think like people think. I've just been reading, I just finished reading the biography of Lilius Trotter. And I had no idea who Lilius Trotter was until some of the folks here opened up the Lilius Trotter Center. And uh, the Hegemans and, and the Littles and Paul Shea and, and uh, uh, Gail Slosser, they, they got together and they've created the Lilius Trotter Center. And it's about Muslim Christian studies and trying to help Christians in places of the world who work with Muslims to figure out the best way to do that. And they bring tons of expertise and a few weeks ago, we had a seminar on Saturday about Christian-Muslim relations, and it was terrific. It was awesome. I'd like to see us do it again. But while they were there, they were talking a little bit about Lilius Trotter, and they had her biography, so I bought one, and I started reading it. And an amazing woman. Wow. In the latter part of the 19th century, she goes to Algeria, 
because she feels a call to Muslims. Never been there before. She and another woman didn't know anybody there. But just went because they felt God calling them. And they established this work there. But what fascinates me is that when she went, one of the things that she made very clear, and as, the, as she was there for a number of years, she kept coming back to that, is that she, she was very clear about the fact that whatever strategies worked in England aren't going to work in Algeria. In fact, she has a, there's one place where she makes the statement that the whole idea of revival meetings and, and big tent gatherings that were so popular in the, lots of places of the world then, she said, that's not going to work here. That's a European thing. That doesn't work with Muslims. Which is fascinating to me because I'd just been reading about her own spiritual journey and, and being a part of the, of the great big campaigns of Dwight Moody, the great evangelist, and about the Keswick conventions where people would gather, thousands and thousands of people would gather. All of that was so instrumental in her life. And what struck me is how often when things are important to me in my spiritual journey, I want everybody else to have the exact same experience. We all do that. I think that's one of the reasons we, we have sometimes difficulties about what worship looks like. is because we had a certain part, kind of worship that, that just was so powerful for us and we want that for everyone else. But we're not all wired the same. And certainly you have two different cultures and here's this woman is saying, what was so important to me and so powerful in my life was awesome. But that doesn't work here because the most important thing is not trying to get people to have the experience I had, but it's to figure out how I can be an agent of reconciliation to them. How can I build bridges to them? What, will, what can I say? What can we do that will open doors so that they can hear about Jesus? And I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that being agents of reconciliation is more about other people than it is about us. When Paul starts talking here about being new creatures in Christ, one of the things he says is that our focus changes. Because before that, we are self-focused. But now we become Christ-focused. And people who are Christ-focused are less concerned about everybody has to think the way I think. To what's the best way to connect with this person or these people so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus. It's what it means to be agents of reconciliation. It's building bridges to where people are, not bridges to where we would like for them to be. I, I, I think it's interesting that one of the things that Paul talks about here in ways in which we do that is that we're really trying to act like Jesus. And and when you get to verse 19, he talks about how in Christ, going to the cross, God no longer counts people's sins against them. Now, that doesn't mean that, that God doesn't take sin seriously. It's not God saying, well, we'll just forget all that stuff. That That doesn't matter. None of that matters. That's not what he's saying. What he really means is God is is not, he's not holding them in their sins. It doesn't matter what people have done. They don't have to be stuck there. The whole point of the cross is that we don't have to be stuck where we are. We can find freedom. We can find release. We can find salvation. We can find all that God wants for us. And too often, we see God with a judgmental spirit. And he's holding things against us. And he never lets them go. But the whole point of the cross is that God has given us this way out. So that we're not stuck there. 
And as people who are agents of reconciliation, we have to have the same mindset. We have to be willing to say, I'm not going to hold people's sins against them. I'm not going to chain them to the things that they've done in the past that need to be let go. It doesn't mean that we don't take those things seriously. It doesn't mean that they're, that they're insignificant. They're very important. In fact, God takes sin so seriously that Jesus goes to the cross. And we take sin so seriously that we keep turning to the cross. But in that, we don't hold people hostage to their sins. It's one of the ways that we become agents of reconciliation is that we, we ask God to help us let those go. And sometimes the sins people commit are against us. People hurt us. People disappoint us. I mean, it, it's part of being human beings with each other. And it's difficult to let go of that stuff. I mean, there, there are circumstances, I can go back to circumstances 25, 30 years ago that I think I've let them go. But it's hard. You know, it. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. And we all, I'm sure all of us have circumstances, people that have, have hurt us and have disappointed us. And we don't want to let go of it. We want to keep people chained into that. But if we are agents of reconciliation, we have got to release it. We've got to let it go. Because as long as we hold on to that, we won't be thinking about reconciliation. We'll be... Creating a spirit of alienation. Holding on to that will create walls, not bridges. And sometimes the sins are against God. And we're defending God. I mean, in this culture in which we live, in which I think most of us would say, so many things are happening and so many things are a part of the culture that we wish weren't. And that burden us and disturb us. And our natural inclination as Christians and as the church is, is to look at that with a spirit of judgment. But if we're going to act like Jesus, then instead of a spirit of judgment, we're going to look deeper into people and circumstances. And we're going to think less about how terrible people are and more about how lost people are. What kinds of experiences have people been through that's brought them to this kind of mindset? What type of hurt and pain and struggle are they going through that would cause them to react this way? What have they seen in the church that has been disappointing to them that's caused them to feel that way about the church? I think that's having eyes like Jesus. And when you get to verse 16, Paul says that, talks about that, that we, um, he says in this translation, I, he stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. I think the alternative to that is, is looking at people with a cross point of view, from the eyes of Jesus, that we see people with their hurt and their struggles and their burdens, like, quite frankly, we would like to be viewed Instead of a human point of view where we hold things against people and we judge them and we condemn them. Because if we're going to be agents of reconciliation, condemnation is not going to help. And we see it all the time. 
all the time. We watch as walls keep build, getting built higher and higher instead of bridges. Because, I mean, what's our goal? Is our goal to win an argument or to win a battle? Or is our goal to introduce people to Jesus? And sometimes when you want to introduce things, people to Jesus, you have to see people the way Jesus does. So what motivates us to do this? What motivates us to be reconcilers, agents of reconciliation? Paul begins this section by talking about fear. He says in, in verse 11 that it, we've, we've understood that that the, have this fear of God and it motivates us. And there is certainly a sense that fear can be a motivation, motivation to us. I mean, we, we've, all been, been, we've all done things because of obligation, because we're afraid of the consequences of it. And so we do it that way. And sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world. Better to do things out of obligation than, that need to be done than to not do them. But I do find it interesting that when you get down to verse 15, Paul says, it's really the love of Christ that compels me. It's the love of Christ, one translation says, that urges me on. And what a difference between doing something out of fear or obligation and doing something out of love. Passion. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to when I was in high school and... uh, I probably shouldn't admit this to you, but I, I was, a, um, I was a, a very uncommitted student in high school. Uh, you know, I could skate by, get decent grades without really working at it. And as long as I could do that, fine, you know, I, I, it worked. I got to college and found that I could, you know, do that to a certain degree. And but what I discovered, you have to study harder, work harder, but it was always, what's the minimal amount that I need to do, Right? I mean, if it's a three to five page paper, you're going to get a two page paper and a sentence onto the third page. That, that's what you're getting from me, right? If it's 500 re- uh, wor- uh, pages of collateral, you're going to get 500 pages of collateral. You're not going to get 501. You're going to get 500. If it's in the middle of a sentence when the 500th page stops, oh, that's good. I'm done. I did my obligation. I did what I was supposed to do, right? And, you know... It, it was what drove me to study and to write papers and to do, go to class was the fear of failing. You know, I, I didn't want to get a bad grade. I didn't want to fail. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about anything other than just, I don't want to get in trouble. And two things happened going into my junior year that changed that. One was I, I responded to God's call about ministry. And so it set me on a path of taking classes I had a little more interest in. And a burden about, but the other thing was a new professor came to campus and began teaching in the religion department, and something about the way he taught turned the light on for me. And I remember thinking to myself, for the first two years, I really didn't know that that building was the library, and and now I'm 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 in the library a lot. And, and, I'm, and I'm looking, a lot of times I'm there, and it has nothing to do with a class I'm taking other than we talked about something, and it sparked an idea or a thought, or I wanted to know more, and I went to the library to find out. And what I discovered is it's, it's so much more fun and interesting to, to study because you want to learn as opposed to studying because you have to, to get a grade. 
And I think there's something of that dynamic. And what Paul's talking about here, about being agents of reconciliation, is that we do it because the love of Christ has so filled us that it's a passion for us and it's a joy for us. And, and, and we engage it and we love it. It's not because we feel like God is looking down on us. I mean, you know, you've been in a, you've been in a department store and you're, looking, you're asking for help from one of the clerks. You can tell the difference between somebody who works there because, and are doing their job because they have to. It's a paycheck and the boss is probably watching as opposed to somebody who loves what they're doing. I mean, you know, the people who love what they're doing don't just answer your question, but they walk you around places and they help you. And that's what we're to be. It's that motivation. Because Christ has so filled us with his love. And we have, we've, we've got a glimpse of seeing people the way Jesus does through the cross. And when we come to this table this morning, we're coming here, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is to remember that Paul says, at least twice in this passage, Christ died for all. When I read that, I tend to think everybody else. But the reality of the cross has to start with us. That we come to this place recognizing that the only reason we're here is because of Christ. None of us are good enough. None of us have earned it, deserved it. We're here because of Christ. And
Remembrance leads us to worship, and as we 